If there's anything I wish for any of the Mason books, it's for people to come away feeling better. And that's not to say that any of the series shies away from what's hard or problematic or devastating in our lives, because we all have to deal with that in one way or another to varying degrees. So I think it's important for me to acknowledge that side of life as well, but to always land on the side of Earth's the right place for love. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the newest episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Today, we are so grateful to be joined by one of our favorite writers and humans, Elizabeth Berg. Elizabeth's newest book, Earth's the Right Place for Love, is out this week, and we know that makes her legions of readers ecstatic. Kirkus Reviews hit the right note by saying, Berg's ability to create characters, even some we meet for only a few scenes, with rich inner lives cannot be overpraised. I am Ron Block. And I am Patty Callahan Henry. Elizabeth is the author of so many best-selling novels, including the story of Arthur Truelove, Open House, which was an Oprah's book club selection way back when it first started, Talk Before Sleep Mm -hmm. and The Year of Pleasures, as well as the short story collection, The Day I Ate Whatever I Wanted. Durable Goods and Joy School were selected as ALA, which for those who don't know, is the American Library Association Best Books of the Year. She adapted The Pull of the Moon, which is actually one of my top three Elizabeth Berg books until her new one, was made into a play that enjoyed sold out performances in Chicago and Indianapolis. Elizabeth's work has been published in 30 countries, and three of her novels have been turned into television movies. She is the founder of Writing Matters, which we will talk about today, a quality reading series dedicated to serving author, audience, and community. She teaches one-day writing workshops and is a popular speaker at venues around the country. Some of her most popular Facebook postings have been collected in Make Someone Happy and Still Happy. She lives outside Chicago. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It is such a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, we love having you. You know what we feel about you. Okay, it's always such a pleasure to have you here. Let's start out by having you tell our listeners what your new book is about. And then we want to know what it's really about. (laughs) I love that question. Um, Earth's the Right Place for Love is about Arthur Moses, who was first introduced in the story of Arthur True Love. In that book, he was an older gentleman in his 80s. In this book, he is a 16-year-old. So it looks at 
what made him become the man he became. I don't often take suggestions for what to write, but in this case, it was my editor who asked me to do this. And I thought, you know, I'd kind of like to know that too. What makes someone be the way they are, whether they're horrible or wonderful, what happened to make them be that way? So that was the impetus for writing this book. And so um, what are some of the themes that Arthur shines on? Love and romance. Mm-hmm. He's in love with Nola. You know, there are there are people who really do believe that there's only one for them. There's just only one. It seems impossible to even say that given the size of the earth and the variety of humanity. But some people including me, by the way, believe that. <laughs> There's, we can talk about that later. Um, believe that it's fate, that it's that it's a soulmate. It's something. It's something very real. He, Arthur is 16 and intractably in love with Nola, and she's like him wishing for Mars to land in his backyard. So in the book, oh. what we see out is how their relationship develops. Incidentally, and this is getting way far ahead, um, my editor then asked me to write a novel about Nola. And that's what I'm in in now. And I thought, I I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this, but man alive. It's just, you know, you know how it is. You get an idea and it just catches fire. You Mm -hmm. think, yeah the right thing to do. So um, I, I seem to be enamored of Mason and all the, all the people. <laughs> well, and when you said, when you said, I'm going to write about Nola, I got the little, those little chill bumps, right? Along uh-huh. your back and along your arm. It's the right, it's the right. Not that I would ever tell you what's the right thing to do, but that's amazing. Well, selfishly, so, it's the right thing to do. Selfishly, for us. it's the right <laughs> thing to do. So, yes, I know and that. Then, this... then I want one uh, from the uh, Mr. and Mrs. Moses. I want their backstory. Oh yeah, he said he wanted one from the mom's point of view. Yep. Oh, the mother. That's so interesting. Why she made yeah, the choices you... she made. Yeah. I know. Well, that sort of fits into what I was just saying. You love who you love. Yeah. Know? You love who um, you love. But yeah. She, um, I'm always interested in people who are in challenging relationships and, and, and decide to chick, uh, stick it out, you yeah. know, what, what makes them do that and how do they do that? And I think it's um, not just, um, marriages, right? I think that there's soulmates and friendships. There's people you meet and immediately are like, you know, have a connection. So I think there's, there's people. Me. You and me. Me and yes. you. From the day we met. Yes. yes. It's true. It's, it's true. true. I you see know. you. I see you. Yeah. So I I know that this is the prequel, like we just talked about, and that your editor asked you to write the prequel, but I want you to tell our listeners what I've heard you talk about before, which is the origin of Arthur True Love in the first place. And I think it was during COVID. And I want you to, to talk a bit about why you even entered Mason and brought Arthur to life on that park bench. Yeah, you know, for me, writing is so many things, but one of the big things is relief. And and to yes. just segue for a moment off onto what I really mean by that, um, 
when I was a teenager and beset by all the things that get teenagers, you know, basically miserable all the time and doubtful and insecure, um, I began writing journal form. And that was what made me feel better. That was where I could put everything. And that turned into why it is that I write today. So Arthur Trulove, before COVID, there was all the political anguish that we were all living through. It just seemed like civility had gone out the window. And I wanted to be somewhere where people were kind to one another, where where things could be contained a little bit more, where things made sense. I had an image of an old guy sitting by a gravesite eating lunch. Mm -hmm. And the gravesite was that of his wife's. And so I wrote a few paragraphs about that. And then I put it away for a while, I guess for a couple of years, we went on to do some other things, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't stop. And then with COVID, I thought, you know what, I'm going I'm to go back to that man and his apparent love for his wife and see where he lives and what he does. And that was the origin of Arthur. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny and amazing and wonderful how you start out sometimes writing things and you think they're going to go a certain way. And then the book says, for example, the character of Lucille in the story of Arthur True Love was meant to be the kindest, sweetest, probably (laughs) old woman. And she, she said, "Uh, I'm not. And she became much more interesting to me and probably to any reader as a result of that. So I think I've, I've gone off the path here of what you asked, but anyway, oh, no, no, the, I was the origin, which is just this. It's just always fascinating yeah, just to me. This one better. seed, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And and I think if if there's anything I wish for any of the Mason books, it's for people to come away feeling better. Yeah. And that's not to say that any of the series shies away from what's hard or problematic or right. Even devastating in our lives because we all have to deal with that in one way or another to varying degrees. So I think it's important for me to acknowledge that side of life as well, but to always land on the side of, or it's the right place for love. Oh, that (laughs) was saying that. (laughs) Yeah. That was the next question. It's like, you read my mind. Where did the title come from? Yeah. The title came from Robert Frost's poem, Birches, which I first read in in my senior year of high school and just loved and um, wrote a little paper on it that got put on the bulletin board. So fancy. Lions, my hero. Um, I, I loved that idea of of absenting yourself in the, I, I should, I could read the poem if you want me to, but um, should I do that? Or yes, that? read it's the poem. Yes. I think yes. <laughs> Put it into context. At least that I don't have the whole poem here, but I have the, um, the part that spoke to me for this book. I'd like to get away from earth a while and then come back to it and begin over. May no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. 
I don't know where it's likely to go better. Mm. So that's anyone who resonated to that, read the whole poem, Birch's Robert Frost. It's, um, it's about a boy swinging on the limbs of the birch tree and imagining going away, but he would always want to come back. Oh, I have tears in my eyes. That's, That's gorgeous. Beautiful. Gorgeous. I haven't read that poem for years. Gorgeous. I know. It's oh. <laughs> so one of the other things about the book, one of the other relationships that's so just stunning is between the brothers. It's extraordinary. And, and obviously you aren't one of the two brothers, but the love between them is as real as anything that I've ever read. Can you talk to us about forming that relationship? Yeah. Um, I, again, um, I, when I write, I'm not always aware of what the influences are, um, but I come to see later. Mm. And I guess I hero worshipped my sister, who was very mean to me sometimes. <laughs> I remember you telling me that. <laughs> <laughs> She was so cool and beautiful, and she knew everything about music. And she had a boyfriend named Dickie who had a truck. And <laughs> and um, uh, I guess I I looked up to her for lots of things. And that relationship exists between Frank and Arthur. Only it's even more intense. And um, Frank is actually, I think, um, very kind to his little brother and on his team and wants him to succeed. And they are a study in opposites in many respects because Arthur's got his stick out ears and he's kind of shy and quiet and he doesn't know how to make the moves. And Frank is the opposite. He's athletic. He's incredibly good looking. All the girls are crazy about him, including Nola. Including Nola. um, At the same time that Arthur relishes taking advice from Frank for the most part, he also knows that he'll never be that kind of guy. So what he has to learn is to accept himself as he is and to work with what he's got and to hope for the best. That's the Uh, tender part. That's wonderful. Yeah. Definitely is. Definitely isn't. It's, it, um, We'll talk a little bit later about how your books make readers feel, but I, I, I was so jealous because I have two older brothers and we never had a relationship like, like that. that. <laughs> no. Um, so talk about maybe some of the other characters, um, the minor ones that we, we kind of grow to love, even in short scenes. So we're talking about like um, some of the neighborhood women and the, uh, the shop owners and the gardeners and, and those people. Where do they and pop a into your teacher. psyche? A certain teacher and well, the parents, yeah, yeah, all of it. Yeah. Oh well, um, okay. Well, um, why don't we start with Mrs. Trentino, yes. who's an older woman for whom Arthur works sometimes, and in in some respects, she's like Lucille, really tough. You know, doesn't take any any nonsense. But in working for her in the small jobs he does, Arthur comes to see her, not only as she is now, but the woman she used to be. One of the ways that's exemplified is that she wants him to help her move some fabric out of her house. She can't see to sew anymore, but she was at one time an accomplished seamstress. So here's a dining room table with piles of fabric all over the place. Seems pretty simple. Shove them in a bag, get them out to the front yard and get them out of there. But what happens is that as they are carefully and reverentially at Mrs. Trentino's request, Mm -hmm. 
that fabric stories come out. Oh, wait, 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 she says. I want to tell you, you know, I made I made a dress out of that. And it was a beautiful dress and it moved in the wind and my husband and I danced in it. And all the things that you can tell about someone by the most unlikely things sometimes. So that begins Arthur's understanding of her as a person and and fuels in him his characteristic of having patience to discover that in people. So um, he helps her with the fabric one day and comes out changed by that experience and helps her another day when she lost her dentures and he's going through her whole house. And really what she wants more than anything is company. And in the same way that all of us are an audience of sorts. And so Arthur becomes that for her. So they become friends, you know, he, he finds unlikely people to befriend, including Harvey Gold, Goldorp. I wish I hadn't named him that. I have the hardest That's- time. <laughs> but anyway, he's one of those nerdy kids that wears galoshes in April with the class jingling and, and knows a lot of obscure facts and reads comic books uh, with great seriousness. And um, he becomes Arthur's friend. And um, Arthur has, he's an old soul, you know, he has a keen appreciation for nature, especially for the people who work in his town, for the setups in the dime store of the plungers and the baby dolls and all the things that used to be in dime stores, parakeets and salted nuts and, and um the butcher who holds up the pot roast and the the barber shop he just he can't sort of help himself from loving everything yeah oh it's so sweet and the words these are the words that kept bubbling for me when i was reading it you're talking about you know him noticing things it was the word tender and gentle and wise and i felt like the mm-hmm. elizabeth berg i know as little as I might, is part of Arthur. And in the kind and noticing way, he looks at the world. And I was texting with my friend Summer, and she she had posted about your book. And she said, we all need more Arthurs. And I was like, exactly. We need more Arthurs right now. And we need more Elizabeth Bergs right now. And yeah, yes. you, yes, and you call him a cockeyed optimist, and I love that. So, do you consider yourself a cockeyed optimist? And does this alter <laughs> how you see the world and how you write your books? I guess I do, um, and I think that there's a. I think one of the reasons that people resonate to Arthur and to characters like him is the wish that we could be more like that. We're yes. so and defensive sometimes and so scared of things that I don't know if you're if you're lying on your deathbed you say geez I shouldn't have done that I don't want to be lying on my deathbed and say that I want to be lying on my deathbed Um, but it's hard people can be cruel people can be negligent people can miss things you are intending to say um, you so it's 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 easy to praise people like Arthur and say we need more of them. I want to be like him, but it's not it's not always easy. It's not always easy to be kind. You have to be 
aware of the fact that your efforts may be rebuffed um, and mm. take the chance anyway. And I think what he does is that. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. So, Elizabeth, one of the most gorgeous aspects of your writing is how you make a reader feel, as Patty just said. We all see a bit of ourselves in your characters, evoking memories that trigger understanding, especially a very tender scene between Arthur and his dad in the barn. It just, you you think things are one way and you kind of get another look at it and you see that things need a bit more understanding. Uh, Does that manifest for you as you're writing these scenes? Yes, and and again, um, talking about influences that come from your own life that you hadn't intended or didn't weren't even aware of when you put them in a book. My father was a formidable character. He was a lifer in the army, and he was terrifying. And when I went out on dates, the boys would come in, you know, hi, Mr. Hoff, and he would say Major Hoff, and and um, he wouldn't smile. He would and inevitably when we got out to the car if it was a first date with a guy he'd say boy your dad's mean and he (laughs) you know he did have that side but he also had a very soft heart and the circumstances of his growing up were not ideal so as I grew older I came to understand what made my dad be the way he was um, and the, the compassion I could bring to him let me be able to embrace him as a whole person with with all the, you know, he could make strudel with the dough so thin you could read newsprint through it. And he mm. was an experimental cook and he loved my mother to distraction. Um, but he was tough. He was tough on us kids. So everybody's a mix. And the father in this book is has elements of how my dad was when he was so scary. And um, this guy's worse than my dad was, but uh, it's hard to bear, you know, the behavior of people like that sometimes. Uh, There was a scene I wrote in the book where he accidentally hits his wife and she falls to the floor and, and just says, I wanted some things. And um, that, that kind of got to me, you yeah. know, when I wrote it, I, th- I was thinking, you know, yikes, this is bringing back some memories. But if there's anything I want to do in writing, it's to forget about worrying about being too personal and just let it out. Let it ride, baby. We were talking before yeah. we came on air. We only have our own compost pile to write from. And sometimes <laughs> something bubbles up that. and we don't see it until later, right? Or we're in the middle mm-hmm. of this scene and we start to feel that pr- almost like a pressure in your chest. Like, oh, my gosh, this is yeah. a little bit of me. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I know we often get asked, and I know you do, too, where do you get your ideas? And I read, I always say they're seeds and they just grow into a tangled, in the case of true love, into a whole forest of books. But I've read that you said that this question, where do you get your ideas, perplexes you because you find life so interesting and complicated and rich with material that you subscribe to the idea 
that writers write about the same things over and over, but in different ways. Can you talk to us about that? Mm -hmm. That sure. Um, I think that um, for me, I write about love, loss, and the search for home in yeah. in different ways every time, every book. But also, I think that writers are born with, as Richard Ford once told me, with a habit of noticing. Yes. You just can't help it. Everything you do, whether you're working or not, you notice things. And you go past someone in a car and they've got curlers in their hair and you say, I know you. And you make up an apartment and the cat that that woman has and the dog that that woman has and what her first boyfriend. I mean, your imagination just goes nuts with, with the smallest provocation. And I, I think it can make you, a, as I've said before, a dismal dining partner, you know, because you're so, you're looking around all over the place and eavesdropping on conversations, which are sometimes more interesting than yes. the one you're having with the person you're out with. And it's, it's like a big collection basket. I feel when you're a writer, you go out into the world and you just put things in that basket to bring back to your writing space. And you may or may not use that particular detail, but it's there because there was something about it that appealed to you, that spoke to you, that seemed to serve as a suggestion for something else you might say. So um, I, I do think writers are born and not made and that's part of it is is the constant imagining yes of other things and i also say the constant wondering like it's a wondering i wonder why that's that mm -hmm. way i wonder why they said that yeah i wonder why yeah. she has curlers in her hair um you know and the wonder where's she going yeah where's she going and why why didn't she take them out before <laughs> she left and um and, and to tag on to that, I think we also, it means we also play psychotherapist. So there's this noticing, mm -hmm. this habit of noticing, which I just wrote down. And yet there's also this psychoanalyzing, like this is where this book came from, Earth's the Right Place for Love. Where did Arthur come from? What made him who he is? That's a, that's a mm -hmm. psychoanalyst dive in. And I think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That's like the good, the good conversations at the party, you know, when the, when there's a small group of people and they're really getting into it, you know, it's not superficial chatter. They're really getting into something kind of risky yeah. and interesting. Um, there's a movie called Strangers in Good Company. Have either of you seen it? Wait, no. I think I have. It's the an old older movie, right? It's really old. Um, oh, I don't even know how many years old it is, but it's old women on a bus that breaks down and they shelter in a house. And, and I watched it again the other night and I was struck by the fact that, you know, these are not actors. They're, they're people just who are turned loose, but you can see, or at least I imagined, okay, here's where the director had a little influence. She said, talk about the first time you fell in love, for example. Mm -hmm. So one of the characters in, in the movie, a Native American woman who's my favorite, says, so how was it for you when you fell in love? And I think that's the conversation I want to be in with. Or another time a woman asks another woman, what is it in life that most frightens you? And I thought, 
that's the conversation I want to be in on. So if if you want to watch a movie that really gets to to the heart and soul of people, and there's, I won't say what it is, Ron, I think you, having seen it, you'll know what I mean, but there Mm -hmm. there come moments in the movie where something is revealed. And I Those are the conversations, right? Yes. Yes. I think I saw that when it first came out. Me too. Me too. With my friend in San Francisco, and I, and we both walked out of there going, "Boy, what was that? <laughs> Such a beautiful movie. So patient. Even scenes like birds flying across the sky. The director stayed with those birds. It wasn't just a flash. It was the birds going all the way across the sky. But never mind about that. Let's talk no, about but me. That's, that's the whole thing. It's like no, it is about you because it's about not only the habit of noticing, but then staying with it, having enough mindfulness and presence to stay with it. Mm -hmm. So the conversation or the character moves from they did this to why did they do this? What are they afraid of? How did it feel to fall in love? Yeah. It is about you. (laughs) Yeah. And I I was just going to say that, that, um, part of being a writer too is is having that kind of empathy so when someone asks another what frightens you most in your life or how did you fall in love for the first time you're right there being that person in the way that you can be it's like writing is also acting inhabiting Uh, each character even even the ones you you really don't like that character, but you become that character. Otherwise, there, there's no authenticity in your presenting that character. That's right. So, all right. I'm going to sneak a question in here because all this talk has made me think about this. Um, so you say that you don't think that writers are born, and that's probably true. And no, they oh, it are. Is true. Yeah. They're born, not made. Yeah. But... Um, but people don't just automatically know that. So they tr- take other paths in their life and they get there. And you both have a background in nursing. I would love for you both to talk about what uh, influence the nursing had on your work, because it, it's something special in the work that both of you do. You have a level of compassion, I think, that directly relates to that. So talk about that, please. You first, Elizabeth. Patty, you want to go first? <laughs> you first. You okay. First. All right. Um, You're the guest. Uh, so you go first. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you an incident that inspired me to be a nurse. First, most broadly, I think that, boy, nurses are some of the best people on the planet Earth. I, I love nurses. And, and, I, and I think that people become nurses because they want to help, because they see pain and they want to fix it, whatever form that pain takes. Um for me, um, it was always about the personality more than the equipment. One of my best friends is also a nurse, and she knew how to do everything technologically. She she could she could work everything in the ICU. She did dressings that were work of art. But I wanted to sit on the bed and and say, what kind of donut do you like anyway? You know, and and uh, and get access into whoever that person was. And I wanted to provide comfort more than anything. And I guess that's what I'm still doing in writing. But but just to um, end this, um, 
what inspired me to become a nurse, I, I started out as an English major, then I switched to humanities, then I dropped out of college because I thought, I'm not going to learn anything in school. I got to get out into the world. And I took a job as information clerk at the Radisson Hotel in Minneapolis, even <laughs> though I had no information about anything at all. And, and I quickly discovered that maybe I'm not going to learn that much at this job either. Anyway, um, I had a job as a nurse's aide when I was in school. And um, I went, or, or maybe I was in food service actually at that that time. I did both things at the hospital. I, I fixed trays, you know, for people to have their meals. But I walked past a room where the door was open. It was on the student station. So everyone there was was quite young unless they were a professor or something. And I saw a, a young man maybe 18 years old, 19, lying in bed with his head slightly elevated. And, and he was obviously very ill and his legs were on sheepskin. And um, I asked one of the nurses what was wrong with him. And she told me that he had cancer and he was in the end stages of that. And I could not even process that, that here I was, going to school, flirting with guys, skipping class, you know, um, or going to class and being mesmerized by something someone said. And here was a guy my age who should have been doing that, who was dying. It did not make sense. And I went into the bathroom and I just wept. And part of my anguish was that there was nothing I could do about it. Nothing unless I were to be involved somehow in saying, do you want a, do you want a McDonald's French fry thing or something? Can I bring you some tapes of some music? Can I, can I do something for you? And that's what I wanted more than anything mm-hmm. was to be able to do something for him, but I couldn't, but as a nurse, I could. I could listen to this forever. (laughs) What a wonderful thing. How about you, Patty? I never wanted in high through high school and college. I never wanted to be anything but a nurse. I, I was so single minded about it that from the time I was probably a freshman in high school, everything I did was so that I could go to nursing school. I took Latin in high school. I was a member of a club called Future Healthcare Services of America. Um, I was very cool. <laughs> um, at, between the Latin club and Future Healthcare Services of America, I, I wasn't on homecoming. I wasn't on homecoming court, you know. But it was it, it was a single minded desire, and I don't know if I can name where it came from, but I think like Elizabeth, you just said, it it comes from a caretaking. um, I think we're all born with with a certain software or or certain bends in life. And part of our life's journey is finding out what to do with the things we already have in us. And um, the caretaking thing is a thing for me. And um, I think writing is not that much different. I I hope that when I write a story, uh, you know, I don't write thrillers. I don't write scary. I don't write, I read them, but um, I'm hoping to 
have some compassion or touch something in you that's already hurting or um, ease the ease the ease the way in being human. And I think nursing and writing can provide both of those things. But even when I was, you know, going to be a nurse, I was the biggest bookworm reader ever. Um, I have pictures of me on spring break in high school on, on a on a boat with like 20 people and I'm reading a paperback. I think it's a Stephen King. Like they're, they're, So both of those already <laughs> lived in me. It's not like I woke up one day and said, oh, I like books. Right. So I think I think we're we're saying the same thing. It, it grows out of this seed of compassion and caretaking and this great broken hearted love for the human race and how painful it is to be human and how wonderful it is and how broken it is and how brave we have to be just sometimes to get through the day. OK, I'm getting off on a tangent because this is all about you. Elizabeth. <laughs> I know, but so thank you both. I love what you said. It's so true. Yes. Just quick aside, I was, uh, you were in the uh, Future Nurses of America. I was in Future Farmers of America. Oh, I love yeah. it. Well, <laughs> that's awesome. Look at you farming books to everyone. Um, there you go. <laughs> Okay, Elizabeth, I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about your teaching and your writing matters because I've told this story on Friends in Fiction before, so we'll make it brief. But I remember the day I met you. I was writing my first novel. This is probably 25 years ago. And I went to hear you at the Margaret Mitchell Center in Atlanta. I lived in Atlanta at the time. And I asked a question. And I asked a question, something about how you divided your writing day. And you looked right at me and with the most tender look and you said, you're a writer, aren't you? And I said, I'm trying. And you said, there's no trying, you already are. So you have such a heart for teaching other people about writing. You have this fantastic mm -hmm. book on writing that is on my shelf and dog-eared called Escaping into the Open. You teach writing workshops and you have a series called Writing Matters. I want you to talk to us about that, about why writing matters. Oh, um, the name came about, um, I remember that, Patty. I, I remember asking you, well, are you writing? You said, yes. And I said, well, then you're a writer. And, and, and boy, are you ever, are you ever. So we're very grateful for the turn, all of us, that you took that made you start writing. And yes, indeed. And I know this is supposed to be an interview about me, but I, I guess everybody knows about you. But if, you know, what a pleasure to, and going into your books is like being cared for. I, I was struck with the analogy you just made about caring for people yeah. um, in, in your books too. But um, what's the question? Oh, <laughs> why does writing matter? You, you devote your life to it and teaching it and having series. Why does writing matter? Yeah, yeah. So writing, when I read, what matters most to me is the writing. Um, I, I, I'm not uh, great on plot. I'm, I'm more interested in, in moments, I guess, and, and um, revelation of character and descriptions of nature that make me gasp. But, you know, lyrical writing, that's what I really love. So for me, the writing matters most. So I, when I wanted to start an author um, series, 
I called it writing matters because that's what matters most to me. And the double entendre, of course, is that writing matters in the world. It yep. just matters, writing and books and reading. Um, I wanted to create a series whereby everyone would be served, the author, the audience, and the community. So um, I found a place, the Hemingway Museum, that was really gorgeous. And we endeavored to make it a kind of party reading. So when people came, they got really good food and really good wine and um, programs. And um, it did turn into that. And and I invited authors I admired who I thought were, were wonderful writers of literary fiction and um, on one occasion an artist. Um, and it was so rewarding because people would come and listen and then gather in the lobby afterward and talk about what they'd heard as well as wait to get their books signed. Another element was that I charged. Um, if you told me I had to charge for myself, I couldn't do it. I know. But for another writer, you bet. Um, so you had to pay $10 to come and all of that money that was not used for, I also had flowers everywhere. Um, flowers and food and wine. I mean, who needs Those anything are the more? Best Maybe a little pot <laughs> under a table. But um, any money that was left over went to say, buy books for a daycare center, mm -hmm. or um, there was a, a cafe in a very dangerous part of Chicago where shootings occurred all the time. And this this was a culinary mission that this woman was doing um, to provide good food in a, in a food desert and to provide a place of welcome. She had drug addicts come who, who had their lives turned around because of her kindness. So she got some money. So there would just be places here and there where I thought, you know, it might not be much. It might be three or $400, but I could do that. So um, then COVID came along <laughs> and uh, we started doing zoom uh, presentations and, Thank God for Zoom and author presentations online. But it's not the same as the electricity that happens when people are among each no. other. So I hope at some point I can get back to that. But that was the impetus. Insofar as teaching, I am struck over and over when I do writing workshops at... <sighs> at the generosity that's inside people mm. to help others and to listen with care and heart to what others have to offer through their writing. Cause it's a, it's one thing to talk to people and it's another to write something that comes from deep inside. And it's scary to read it. If you've not um, published or some of these women have, have just not ever done that before. I always have Kleenex handy because somebody's always crying, crying, especially me. And I always have a lot of good food. And what I want to do with workshops is just say, look at your writing in a different way for today. I'm going to give you some ideas. And I want to take one of your writing today. workshops. What happens. Yeah. So um, those are those two things. That's awesome. Uh, 
it's you give so much back to people and one of the things that i don't i i think you probably are aware of is this connection that you have with your facebook followers and all of the descriptions you have even of a simple walk around the block uh in the fall and how you describe it all and those have all, now all been collected into the happy series which i think there's three now can you talk about that a little bit and and if there might be more coming yeah I, I was going to run over there and show you the cover because I love the cover so much. I have a friend, um, Phyllis Florin, who is a beautiful writer and designer, and she always kind of gets me. And I asked her to create a cover that was, I said, I want these um, Facebook postings to be like, you get something really good in the mail for mm -hmm. a change. You know, you get something good in the mail. So she made an old fashioned mailbox. And the first cover was it was stuffed with flowers. And um, that's what I wanted to do with these postings was, again, create a place of comfort and, and cheerfulness. The first one's called Make Someone Happy. The second one's called Still Happy. And the third one's called Happy to Be Here. And, um, you know, they make like, if you go to a dinner party rather than a bottle of wine, you can bring one of these books. And yes. a lot of people have told me this is, I can just hear my mom saying, well, don't we find ourselves fascinating? Don't we like to talk about us? But anyway, <laughs> a lot of people have told me that they keep those little books by their bedside and, yeah. you know, you pick it up, read a little entry and you get reminded of something that you love in your own life. Right. Yes, Ron, the Facebook community, I am so moved reading comments by people who it's a self-selected committee. It's like a little family yeah. of like-minded individuals and they, um, I may introduce a topic, but then they start commenting and they kind of go off on their own, consoling or informing or engaging and making friends. And it's it's been it's been very special to me. I'm not technologically oriented. I'm scared to death of all that stuff. <laughs> but I am so appreciative of what has happened for me and, and the people who come to um, my Facebook page. Yeah. Well, it's the very best use I've seen of social media. Yeah. It's just connecting people. It just is a great example of connecting people. I feel Thank like you. Friends of Fiction is the same thing. It's this self-selecting. Yes. People don't, if they come to the page for a different reason than kind book sharing, um, they leave because they don't get what they want out of it. So it's, I always say it's the one of the kindest corners on the internet, just like your Facebook page. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, agreed. They're right at the beginning, too. Yeah, yeah. right at the beginning, just like you. All right. We are running out of time, which breaks my heart because I could talk Boo. to you for hours. But I want you to talk to us for a moment about your tour for Earth, the Right Place for Love. Where can people find you online and can they order signed copies and all of that? The the tour, I am going to Cleveland and, and Ron, I, I was so that you asked me early on, you know, Ron, do you want to come to Cleveland? Yes, yes. And um, here's the book. Here's what, whatever you need, whatever you need. Let's, yes. let's definitely do this. So, yes, um, I won't go through the itinerary, but I will tell you that um, 
Uh, you can find it on my website, elizabeth-berg.net. And I also posted it on Facebook. I'm going not, as I was saying before we began, in the olden days, you know, you'd go to 17 cities and your head would be spinning. But now... <laughs> with COVID and with cutbacks by publishers and so on, it's smaller and more manageable. So I'm going to Cleveland. I'm going to Isle of Palms and uh, to Milwaukee and um, where else am I going? Uh, I don't know. It's all, it's all, it's on on your website. Yeah. My website and you click on the event you're interested in, it will give you more details where, when, whom to contact and so on. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I know readers are dying to see you again, so I'm so happy. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. It's always just fills my heart. I know it's the same with Patty, and our listeners are just going to love this conversation. It's a huge pleasure, and we can't wait to see you in person again. Me too. Thank you. Don't make me cry. Thank you. Thank you. I love making you cry. (laughs) It's okay. We can all cry together. It's all yeah. right. We're good. Yeah. We're protected and we're in a bubble. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And Pat, it's so wonderful to see both of you. I'm privileged to call both of you friends. But even if I didn't know you, I would have been so cheered by this interview. I think your your questions are are heartfelt and intelligent. And it's so fun to have this conversation. And I hope we can do it again sometime. Thanks, Elizabeth. Okay. Anytime, actually. You're the best. You're the best. And a huge thank you to our listeners for joining us each week. Don't forget that you can purchase Elizabeth's book on our Friends in Fiction bookshop.org site. Save a little money while supporting our beloved indie bookstores. We will see you the next time on the podcast. Share with a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends in Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.